Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you everyone for tuning in for the for another episode of the Ahmed Khan podcast. Today I'm excited to announce Brother Hassan. For those who don't know Brother Hassan, he's a research fellow at Yaqeen Institute. He has both a bachelor's and a master's degree in Islamic history. And he is also the founder of iHistory, a website that publishes articles on Islamic history. Thank you for joining us, bro. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Thank you, Ahmed, for inviting me and having me on here. Um, just a quick correction in that bio, I am currently pursuing my master's degree. And I would appreciate everyone's prayers that I can um, you know, finish that uh, soon, inshallah. Inshallah. Maybe, maybe we'll, I'll have to post this after you complete it then. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's also an option. <laughs> so uh, I'm very excited about today's discussion. It's one I'm very passionate about. One out of, out of all the topics that I've studied, this is the one I know best, um, which is this period known as the golden age of Islam. Now, the, the Eurocentric narrative of history that we are taught is something along the lines that civilization or intellectual thought begins with the ancient Greeks, with Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, who began to make these incredible developments. And sometimes they give reference to Egypt with people like Ptolemy. But all of a sudden after the Roman Empire collapses, there's this period known as the Dark Ages, that the entire world stops to develop uh, intellectual thought. There's no more thought in philosophy, astronomy, in the sciences, and the entire world just seems to stop at the same time. And then all of a sudden, in the 1300s, the Europeans rediscover many of these ancient Greek texts, and that begins that lays the foundation for the European Renaissance, which thus leads to the Enlightenment until the current period today. What we are going to find in this podcast, inshallah, is we are going to debunk this narrative um, and many of the other narratives that acknowledge that a so-called golden period of Islam did emerge, but that merely the Muslims just translated the text rather than built off of them. So my first question to, to you, Hassan, is what is this period of the golden age of Islam? Is this the correct terminology that we should be using or is this somewhat of a simplistic, perverted sense? Um, you know, so it, the, the period generally referred to as the golden age of Islam is, um, uh, you know, in terms of time frame, first of all, um, it's generally thought to be from sort of the early 700s um, to about uh, the mid 1200s, right? Um, and, and, and so, and, and really the peak of it being in, the 9th century and the 10th century, the 11th century, so from the 800s to the early 1000s. Um, now, it's, you know, I'm, I'm glad you framed the question um, with that um, backdrop of how history is normatively taught, um, particularly in the West, right, um, with that um, ancient Greek and Roman civilization and kind of like an honorary mention of the Egyptians and Mesopotamians and um, the ancient Indians and a few other you know, ancient civilizations and then the so-called dark ages and then suddenly there's like a revival. Um, and certainly like during that period, um, which is known as the dark ages, there were um, 
flourishing civilizations, uh, there were, uh, you know, huge um, cultural developments. There was a lot of progress. Um, there was a lot of um, creativity that was happening in many parts of the world in sort of the core Islamic lands. Um, and also it's important to acknowledge um, as well um, in the Americas with the indigenous people um, in West Africa with the uh, pre-Islamic um, and then the Islamic um, sort of uh, civilizations there uh, in West Africa, in, in East Asia, right, China. Um, so in these cultural spheres, there's a lot of activity happening, you know, cultural, scientific, all those kinds of things. But because we are looking at it from the Europeans' perspective, for them, it certainly was the Dark Ages. I mean, if you look at it, um, you know, if you look at their history during that period, um, it was a period of, um, uh, you know, a political stagnation, right? A cultural stagnation. Um, although I, I believe that periodization in this sense always has to be challenged, right? And this is what I'm going to mention about the golden age of Islam as well. Um, but it also applies to other civilizations. Like we, we like to have these, um, when we're looking at history, because um, many of uh, the people who look at history are obviously non-historians. History is something that everyone has an interest in, but not everyone has the time or the energy or the capacity to really dive into like, you know, the details, um, the specific events and go through the entire thing. So what we like to do and what we like to teach as well, sadly, in the education system are these very like, you know, neatly chopped up segments of history. Oh, there's a golden age, there's a golden era, right? Um, the 1920s were the roaring 20s, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there was like an era of fascism, there was an era of this, an era of that. Um, and, and while it's like a useful way, perhaps, to organize um, history when you're teaching it to a very young audience, for example, children, just to help them make sense of it, it's exclusive, it's exclusionary, I should say, right? And it's reductive. It really reduces what is going on. Like if I were to ask in the present, like today, how would you characterize this era um, that we're living in? Um, it, it would be, you know, difficult to characterize it because we are living in it and we are aware, like any, any sensible person is aware of all of the complexities of how complex it is. Yes, certain things stand out that are going on in society, right? But it's a very, very complex situation. And this is the way societies and um, the human experience has always been. So when we talk about the golden age of Islam, um, I do think um, we tend to romanticize it. Um, and, I, and I don't want to just um, say that and say, well, oh, Muslims are just kind of intellectually lazy, like they don't want to get into like the actual history. So they're just romanticizing it. This is a very much a reaction to um, the colonial experience and through which, you know, Muslims were denied their histories, right? They were denied like a, like a meaningful contribution in the, the human story. So, and so this became a, a very much um, of a reaction to that where while the lingering effects of colonialism still find their way into education, you know, when I was growing up here in Canada in the textbooks, there was no mention of Islam for like years, right? And we learned about all these civilizations. And there's a funny thing I like to tell. Um, I, I remember taking grade 11, 11th grade uh, world history class and this is in Toronto. So I grew up in Toronto, Canada. 
um, 11th grade uh, world history class. So that went from the ancient civilizations and it went all the way up into late antiquity. So just before sort of the emergence of Islam, mm -hmm, even yeah. though it was, it was part of the curriculum, right? Um, to, to discuss the Islamic civilization as well. So I'm like, okay, so what do I do? So I go to 12th grade and I take 12th grade world history, right? And the 12th grade world history is supposed to start with Islamic civilization, but the teacher makes the choice to start just after sort of the period of Muslim political and cultural ascendancy. <laughs> so we start with the Renaissance, right? So it's like both of those courses are supposed to discuss Islam, but neither one actually does. It, they literally skip over that period. And it is, again, it's because of this, um, general sense that oh i mean it's not that important what was really happening it's the dark ages right um we can just kind of skip over that so it's not important um so so that's that's uh you know so with that kind of an experience so for me growing up and going through that experience now when i go do my own research and i suddenly realized that there were all of these great muslim scientists and thinkers and all of um, these architectural achievements and artistic achievements and in mathematics and astronomy and medicine um, and, and, and you know, uh, culinary arts and all these kinds of things, there's so much going on. Obviously my inclination is going to be uh, very much a reaction to that experience I had earlier. Okay, there was a Muslim golden age and you guys are just denying it because it was a golden age of Muslims, people you particularly don't like because of, present day politics or whatever it may be, right? So um, that being said, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm just trying to give that context here. So I think in that sense, Muslims do tend to romanticize the golden age. Um, and that is not something I think is particularly like, oh, that's wrong, or that's something bad to do, quote unquote. Um, I think what's important is to just be mindful of that's why we're, that's what we're doing. And this is why we're doing it because of we're reacting to a certain, um, you know, colonial uh, narrative, a certain erasure of our history. Um, and as we'll discuss, I guess, in the as we go through this podcast, is like the, the golden age, as we refer to it, is a very complex time, right? Like I said earlier, you know, human experience and societies are always complex, right? Um, and when we get into the details, I think it's important to get into those details and to work towards that because. Um, that is when we're going to be able to say, okay, there were certain things we liked about that period, certain things we really admired about that period, and we're trying to replicate it today, but there's going to be certain challenges, and this is how we overcome it, right? So we need to see what was great about that period and also what the challenges that persisted during that period were, because when you try to replicate it today, like a lot of discussion today is let's revive like the golden age of Islam. Right. But until you have a holistic picture of the original of the blueprint that you're looking at, if you're only going to look at like the what was amazing about that time. And, you know, if you're only going to have this very rosy picture of what was going on at the time, you're not going to be able to replicate it because you're looking at a rosy picture. But the reality you're facing today is, is much more complicated. So how do we navigate the challenges we have today in the process of trying to recreate that situation if we'd like to recreate it? And so that's why, um, you know, and we'll get into other reasons as to why I think um, we need to be mindful. I hesitate to use the word problematic. I don't think it's problematic to use the reference golden age of Islam uh, because there's several, there's a lot of things that are useful about saying it that way. Um, and there's a lot of 
things that um, are, you know, we need to validate the experiences of people um, in learning their own history and how they feel about their own history. At the same time, um, what are the challenges and the pitfalls? Um, and I think especially when we come to periodization, if we get to the question of, well, when did the quote unquote golden age end? Um, I think that we can go further into like a discussion of, okay, what do we uh, mean? How do we sort of um, delimit this concept of the golden age of Islam? Mm. A number of fascinating points. You know, I, I had never considered the idea that colonialism is the reason why we kind of romanticize of this period. Um, and looking back now in hindsight, it definitely makes a lot of sense, especially when, you know, when somebody takes your narrative away from you, you want to establish it. And sometimes you start becoming a little bit forceful. And um, for those who listened to the previous podcast, we had Brother Bassam. Brother Bassam, myself, and a couple other brothers um, are working on uh, reforming one of the school district's curriculums here, particularly its Islamic studies curriculum. And what was actually fascinating is they sent us their entire grade, uh, grade six to grade 12 curriculum on social studies. And they actually had a period dedicated towards th this golden age of Islam. Um, and to me, it was a great sign that the educational, that the educational systems are starting to promote this. Um, but although they are promoting it, the, there, there are components of the narrative which need to be challenged, which we will get into. Um, so I, I completely agree with you on that point. I think it all really comes down to the reason why Muslims are being forceful to push this in is because of this Eurocentric narrative. Um, I took a class on the philosophy of science um, and I had to write a paper on the, on the Muslim development in astronomy. And I had to work with one page in a textbook because that was all they offered. And that was the worst, that was one of the worst papers I ever did in university <laughs> because she said, she said there was no material on the matter because she said the same argument. She said the Greeks, you know, there was this Aristotelian physics system uh, and it, which Ptolemy built off of. And then, you know, Muslims did a little bit of developments and then Copernicus comes and Galen comes. And I really tried writing an article just based off that one, uh, that one page. Um, I didn't do the best. But uh, and then I challenged the professor and, you know, this was really disheartening what she told me. I said, you know, Muslims have made these incredible developments in astronomy. Arguably, nobody has made developments in astronomy as Muslims have. And inshallah, we will get to that. But she said, well, you're at a you're at a Eurocentric university. Expect a Eurocentric education. And I said, wow. And. It, this is in stark contrast to the previous semester where I took a class on, um, on the discovery of the new world. And there was no mention at all of the fact that 25% of the slaves were Muslims. And I brought this up to my teacher. I recommended her to read Servants of Allah by Sylviane. Um, and she messaged me uh, that in, the, in this previous fall, she dedicated like a whole lecture on the, on the Islamic on, on, on the slaves being Muslims and the practices they had. Um, and so I do this with all of my uh, professors uh, and they all have a certain love and a certain hate for me because I'm always challenging them. But I think that's the reason why. That's the reason in my classes, in every class I'm in, um, I have to push this. I took a class last semester on his, uh, historiography and I had to really push Ibn Khaldun and Al-Jabarti 
right? Ibn Khaldun, the founder of sociology, a major player in economics and history. So as we'll see, you know, we, we do need to be a bit forceful with this in the situation that we're currently in. And Alhamdulillah, there's, there's a lot of resources available to us, but still we need to challenge the narrative because some individuals such as Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is brilliant, but argues that the Muslims merely translated the works and didn't make any developments at all. So, um, so the next question I wanted to ask you, which is really at the crux of what people want to know is what were some of the event inventions that happened during this period? What, what, what sciences were being developed? Um, if you could go on and add. Um, you know, you could have an entire podcast just on that, right? Um, uh, first of all, I, I want to commend what you just said about um, how you um, do go out of your way to um, sort of correct and enrich the kind of education um, that is being offered, right? Whether it's through your work with, um, you know, uh, the curriculum um, or whether it's your work with um, or, you know, directly in communication with professors, etc. Um, we, those of us who know, do have that responsibility. Right. And, and like, for example, if you're listening to this podcast and you find something um, interesting and beneficial, right, it, it is like, you know, an, an encouragement to, okay, let me pass it on to somebody else who may benefit from it. And let's not shy away from that, especially when we're talking to professors and things like that. Um, it can all, it, it can be intimidating, right? Like, oh, like, you know, is, I mean, is she or he is a prof, um, you know, I'm not just going to send them like, hey, I think you should read this or whatever but it's so important because like the quote you mentioned you're at a eurocentric university it's like a eurocentric education is a clear case of somebody who's aware of their own bias who's so aware of their um own blind spots in what they're teaching others and yet they're not saying you know i'm going to do something to challenge that they're saying oh this is just the way things are right so um it, it, it's kind of hilarious to kind of hear that um and, and it's our role and, and to kind of um, push the uh, Muslim presence in history into the mainstream narratives at any opportunity we have. Um, now coming to your question, right? So what are some of those narratives, I guess we could say that we could be pushing, right? When it comes to Muslim inventions, it, again, there's just so much, it's, it's often very, very difficult to know where to start. Um, there's certainly um, contributions in astronomy, which you, you mentioned earlier, right? Um, I was reading recently about um, the Mawakid of the Umayyad Mosque um, in the 1300s, early 1300s, Ibn al-Shatir. Um, and he's a Mawakid, he's a timekeeper of the mosque. So he designs this incredible, like I think it was two meter wide sundial um, that's placed on top of one of the minarets of the Umayyad Mosque, which is in Damascus, which is still there today. Um, the mosque is, the sundial has broken down over time and it's in one of the museums in Damascus, but it was recreated in the 19th century and uh, the recreation is there, right? Um, and how he used um, that position that he had where his primary role was timekeeping and determining the times of prayer as Muslims pray five times a day. Um, he used that role to expand into doing other kinds of research in astronomy, in theology, right, in, in the study of time, etc. And he came up with the planetary theory, um, a planetary theory that's remarkably similar and much earlier 
than what Copernicus came up with, um, you know, the uh, sort of the heliocentric model of the universe or the solar system. Um, and so, you know, we know that story. I, I think as soon as I say Copernicus, people start, you know, the rest of the dominoes start to fall in line. If you remember Copernicus, um, and then, you know, Galileo built upon that, and, you know, he had his the situation with the church, and then other people kept building upon that, right? Um, but again, the cutoff is like, okay, where did Copernicus perhaps find inspiration? Or, or even um, there's some discussion among scholars about, you know, did he plagiarize, right? There's a there's a very there's a huge um, history of uh, you know intellectual property relations between the Muslims and um, Christendom or, or you know Christian Europe. Um, so so that's one example, and the reason I like that example in particular is because um, of that um, first of all that you know very interesting potential connection between um, a, a Muslim astronomer and uh, a, a well-known European astronomer. Um, the other reason is that, uh, you know, it's very important to highlight that this person, his, his religious role within the religious community and how his um, role, um, you know, as a timekeeper of a mosque did not, first of all, did not prevent him from, you know, indulging in other forms of research and other, you know, it did not, um, stifle down his curiosity in any way. I mean, he's somewhat, you know, if I just described him as, oh yeah, there was a guy in 14th century, early 14th century, he used to work at a mosque. You would never think that this was the same guy who was coming up with like the planetary theory, right? Um, so, so that's like one example. So I want to really emphasize that, that if, you know, there's often this idea that, oh yeah, I mean, you know, the Muslims contribute a great thing, but they were like kind of cultural Muslims, like all those people who were making those great inventions and things like that, they weren't like the, you know, I go pray in the mosque kind of Muslims. They were like, you know, just kind of, but you know, there, there are a lot of examples to challenge that. Um, you know, we have famous examples like, you know, Al-Khwarizmi, whose, whose name became the word algorithm, right? Which we talk about a lot these days on social media and all kinds of other things, um, who did the, the, the one of the, part of the title of the book he wrote on arithmetic, um, Al-Jabr, you know, the Arabic word, became the word algebra, which we all don't like, right? Um, <laughs> right, but we, we appreciate its role in, in creating the world that we have today, right? Um, so, so these are some of the examples, um, and, I, and I really like to branch out into non sort of scientific examples. Like I feel like a lot of people aren't aware, like historians of literature would tell you that the very first novel was written by a Muslim. Like there's this uh, idea that Hay ibn Yafzan Right, this famous philosophical novel by this um, philosopher and physician in Al-Andalus in Muslim Spain, whose name is Ibn Tufayl, he wrote this novel. And, and that novel is so interesting, again, because um, you know, it, it's the story, just to go into it very quickly, um, it's the story, uh, it's a philosophical novel, so it has this, this lesson, right? And the story is that a child is sort of abandoned on an island um, there's no other people there. And the child is sort of raised and nurtured by animals. Um, and ultimately it's about- I know where this the, the is question. from. I have an idea. You know where it's right? Even, so, though I, <laughs> even though I've never uh, heard of this story, I know where it's going. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I'm, I'm glad you can make that connection, but I'm sure that the reason you can make that connection is because, again, we have the knowledge of present day kind of culture, European Eurocentric culture, but not where it actually 
may have found very significant inspiration from, right? So anyway, so he grows up and the question is, um, without having access to revelation and without having access to other people um, to communicate with, to learn from, can a person just by, you know, observing and speculating on nature around them, on their own experience, mm -hmm. arrive at the understanding that there is a creator, that there is a God, right? Um, and so the story, I mean, even Tufail's conclusion is that yes, right? Even without revelation, but although he does have an experience later on where he, he comes across revelation and he realizes that revelation is essential for, for understanding, right? Um, for especially for the understanding of an entire society, because not everyone is going to be able to contemplate at the same level. And, you know, revelation basically guides reason. This is the, this is the premise, right? Revelation guides reason, um, because otherwise reason, if it's just let go on its own, it can lead to a lot of untruths, essentially. Um, and so, you know, and then like, you know, this is, this is in the early, you know, middle ages. And then like a, a few centuries later, I forget the exact, um, I forget the exact like separation. The first English novel appears called Robinson Crusoe, which is like virtually the exact same story, right? And like today we have like, you know, cultural elements like, um, like we have Tarzan, right? We have stories like, um, what's the other one called? Like Jungle Book, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's, there's all these kinds of stories where the, you, you get the same kind of coming of age kind of story, living in nature, um, having that close relationship with nature and um, aspiring for something uh, beyond like human connection, beyond nature and what do you learn through that, et cetera, et cetera. So where is, is all of this coming from, right? Another one of my favorite examples is um, uh, there was one of the Abbasid queens, one of the wives of Al-Ma'moon, um, the, the Abbasid ruler, um, her name was Al-Buran, and th this is very funny because she is, uh, like, I don't know exactly what to call her, um, but she literally is, like, the eggplant person, right, or the aubergine person, if you're, like, from the UK and here, but <laughs> um, th the point is, uh, like, you know, it, it, these are the kinds of, like, when we talk about contributions, right, um, it's really important to realize the diversity the range here right mm -hmm. so when i say like she's the eggplant person what did she do i mean there was a whole thing in early muslim culture about like this this vegetable called the eggplant it's like okay and and you know there were poets that were like this is like you know it's like a it's, it's something horrible they would describe it in all kinds of derogatory ways there were doctors that were like um eggplant causes cancer and eggplant causes freckles and all these kinds of things mm -hmm. right uh, and what was the reason for it because it was so bitter to eat like even today you can find that like you can go try biting into an eggplant or something and it's so bitter to eat um and this this um uh, this woman she loved to experiment with it right and so what she did was um she found this technique this particular technique of cooking eggplant that took away a lot of the bitterness and really brought out the taste. And she single-handedly like changed, like you can see, like, you know, historians actually discuss like the change on like the change in poetry, the change in what doctors started saying about eggplants, wow. um, the, the, the spread of recipes, right? So if, for example, if you can, you can go to like a, your local Afghan restaurant and you can get an eggplant dish called Borani, 
right? I said her name was Al-Buran, right? So to this day, like dishes in Afghanistan, in Turkey, in Morocco, um, like across the Muslim lands, even in Europe, right? And there's like, there's there's some potential link between even names such as Aubergine, like, it, you know, they, 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 they go back to her name, right? Like wow. that's where the inspiration comes from. So like that is a contribution. If you ask me, that is a contribution to the culinary arts. It's not algebra. It's not, you know, um, uh, you know, it's, it's not like astronomy, but it's important. It's, and I think this is something that we have to recognize because oftentimes what we do is that we will like go to like a chef and, and be like, hey, did you know Muslims invented algebra? Right. Like maybe that person didn't particularly care about algebra and especially the algebra example that we often use. It's funny because, you know, we don't like algebra, like I said earlier, right? Like, like, like math is not everyone's favorite subject. So we go around telling everyone Muslims invented algebra. Like maybe they hate algebra. It's just going to make them hate Muslims more, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's, we got to be like, okay, we got to recognize the diversity. Another quick example I'll give you um, is the jury system. So the 12 member jury system can actually be traced back to um, uh, 12, uh, sorry, yeah, like 12th century, Maliki law or basically Middle Ages Maliki law in North Africa, right? In which, you know, Islamic law um, has a particular system of requiring witnesses and it's, it's very meticulous. Um, and so in particular situations in which the appropriate kind of witness could not be um, present, right? Uh, during a ruling or they could not be found in a particular situation. Um, it's, it's a complicated story. I won't go into all of the details, but the point being, that they came up, they came up in you know Maliki, North Africa, with this system of let's um, uh, have a twelve member, like twelve people testify, right, and that is considered to be a an alternative for like the testimony of a particular type of individual who would have been ideal, but they weren't available for whatever reason. Now this goes to Sicily, which is you know the island in Italy, mm -hmm. very close to North Africa which was also ruled by Muslims. So the same, it, it's extended to Sicily. And in Sicily, once the Normans reconquer Sicily from the Muslims, um, it's picked up by uh, one of the advisors to one of the kings of Britain, who then takes it back to Britain. And then you know, lo and behold, suddenly we have this 12 member jury system hmm. in Britain. And then from Britain, all over the Commonwealth, I mean, we have it in Canada, all over the world, you have the standard 12 member jury system, right? So in, in, in every sphere of life, Muslims have been making these incredible kinds of contributions, right? Um, tulips, coffee, ice cream, right? And I love these kind of examples, which are not like, you know, Muslims were like the great astronomers. Yes, they were. I mean, Muslims were, I mean, I think you said astronomy, Muslims had incredible contribution. Maybe later down the line in this conversation, we can talk about medicine. Right, I mean, enormous, enormous contribution, like directly saving people's lives, everyone's lives to this day, that knowledge and the knowledge that it inspired is saving people's lives right now, right, all over the world. That stuff is incredible, but we also have to diversify the range here. Contributions in law, contributions in culinary arts, contribution in architecture, in art, um, in navigation, in, in travel narratives, right? Cheng Ho, Ibn Battuta, right? Um, uh, Nicholas Said, right? And, and mm -hmm. so we can, we can come back to like maybe some of these examples as well. But um, like I said, at the beginning of this long answer, you know, there is a whole podcast 
that needs to happen on just Muslim contributions of different kinds. Hmm. Yeah, no, you know, and out of all of those inventions you mentioned, I honestly knew none of them, subhanAllah. So uh, <laughs> I appreciate that you went into the, especially the literature route. Um, you know, the, the story, I remember reading Robinson Crusoe in one of my history classes. Um, and um, I mean, I wasn't a big fan of it. It wasn't the best story. But, you know, my favorite Muslim story, which had a drastic influence on the West, is actually Layla and Majnoon. Um, Layla and Majnoon is one of my favorite books. Um, the Indonesians, they just recently uh, created a movie on Leila Majnoon, which I love. But Leila Majnoon is a spark that leads to Romeo and Juliet. Um, and um, regards, to, uh, regards to law, I'm, I'm very glad you brought up law. Um, I didn't know that specific one, but I do know that when Napoleon went to Egypt, um, Napoleon used to sit with the ulama um, and they used to teach him Islam. And when Napoleon was leaving after, the Brit the, uh, the, uh, after Britain came and attacked and the Ottomans, is he took a bunch of the Maliki scripts with him and he went back to France and that became the basis for his Napoleonic code. Um, and many, many places still use the Napoleonic code in America, Louisiana, Louisiana still uses it. So, and I love your contention that too often we focus on these broad mainstream topics such as astronomy, uh, um, you know, we, we always mention Ibn al-Haytham um, with the optics, but it, it's good to also get to these tinier, not, not tinier, but uh, the ones that are less frequently mentioned to bring more exposure to them. Um, and in the realm of medicine, you know, my, perhaps my favorite discovery uh, or invention during this entire period is Ibn Sina's Canon of Medicine. And his, his book on medicine, which was essentially a compilation of all of the books on medicine that kind of existed at that time. So he took works from the Chinese, from the Indians, from the Persians, from the Greeks, uh, to, the, to the Romans and to the Egyptians, and he all put it in one book. And this became the standard textbook they taught in Europe for over 500 years. Um, and in regards to um, you know, the discoveries that Muslims are making today, I mean, the most famous vaccine out there is the Pfizer one. I don't even know how to pronounce it, but those are created by Turks. Um, so we begin to see that there are still changes being made. And this is an excellent segue into my next topic is that today, you know, Muslims are kind of seeing religion and also Islam is seen as being anti-scientific as that these are two domains. Um, and obviously throughout history, there's a, there's a lot of discussion on this, but to refute this argument, that Muslims have not been, uh, not been um, uh, in the realm of science, that they're anti-scientific. We can clearly see from many of these examples that we've mentioned um, that we have. And just one example I wanna mention, I'm not sure if you know him, um, but there's somebody named Bruno Guirtadoni. I don't know. I, I thought you would have known. He spoke at RIS a couple, I think two years ago. So I thought you would have known. <laughs> So there's a man named Bruno Gertadoni, um, and I encourage everybody to research this. So this is a Frenchman, and he is one of the greatest astrophysicists alive on the planet. He's published more than 100 research articles. Brilliant man. Um, if you listen to him speak, you'll see that this is an incredible man. He's a Frenchman. Um, and he writes in his articles, he says that 
as I began to study the universe, I, as I, and he, uh, he won many prizes on his development on uh, galaxy formation. He said, as I began to study galaxy formation, as I began to study the stars, he said, I began to realize that all of these were pointing towards something, that all of this design could not have been created by itself. And he decided to go on a journey to Morocco. And as he goes to Morocco, he speaks to the Moroccans. They begin to teach him Islam and he begins to analyze it and he begins to put it together with uh, his astronomy. And he says, he says, Islam is the only Islam is Islam is the, is the is the package that I'm missing from my astronomy to make sense of the universe. And he became Muslim. And subhanAllah, this is one of the greatest people in the entire realm of astronomy living today. Uh, who is a Muslim and who is constantly uh, delivering lectures on this topic. And he, now that he's studied enough of Islam, he's able to give an analysis of both of them. So, um, and there are many examples. Um, Aziz Sankar actually won a Nobel, he's a Turkish man who actually won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, I think two years ago. So the idea that Muslims have never won a Nobel Peace Prize has been debunked. And we also had uh, a Pakistani, Abdus Salam, who also won it. So, um, Islam and Muslims are not anti-scientific, but my question to you is why do you think in this age, and this, this is perhaps a little segue, but why is it in this age, these past hundred years or so, there's been um, a diminishment in the study of sciences? Um, so again, I think that's tied to the colonial experience, right? Um, and, and the first thing to acknowledge are all of the shining examples, like some of the ones you just mentioned right um uh you know some other ones might be like in in the past century like samira musa she was a groundbreaking um egyptian uh nuclear uh scientist who wanted to use nuclear um energy for medicine um and she was the first person given a tour of the u.s nuclear facilities first non-american person um, to ever be allowed to see those and then she was assassinated right um there, there are so many uh, examples in the present day, um, you know, Fazlur Rahman, um, the, the Phyllis Tower in, in Chicago, right? He's the Einstein of structural engineering. That's what they call him. Like basically any skyscraper you see today um, is, is uh, largely um, possible due to um, the, the work that he did in structural engineering. And the reason I mentioned the, the Sears Tower or the Willis Tower as it's now called in Chicago one of the tallest buildings in the United States is because he was the one who designed it. So there were, there, there's so many examples. And I think as a community, first of all, the thing to say here is that what do we do? Like you mentioned an example that I didn't know of, right? And I feel kind of bad about that, right? Like I should know, maybe I'm not doing enough. And this is like a moment of reflection for me, not in like an accusatory kind of way that, hey, like, hey, how come you don't know these people? Like, do you not care? Like, let's not do any of that. But at the same time, let's take these as reminders for ourselves that Muslims are excelling. What am I doing to uh, learn about their success, contribute to their success, support their success, right? And this is when we talk about the golden age. I mean, you know, the, the discussion of like a thousand years ago is only useful up to a certain point. What are we doing today? What kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, how are we inspiring other people? How are we supporting other people? How are we, um, you know, uh, basically self-sacrificing? Maybe I can give up some of my time and my energy 
and the resources at my disposal and my knowledge and all of that to help somebody else do something great and then create this environment in which they do the same thing for me. And this is how we all lift each other up together. This is how the golden age develops, right? Ibn Sina and Al-Biruni used to argue in their letters all the time. And it's actually some of the funniest things I've ever read. Like these, <laughs> they're the two greatest, like two of the greatest minds of human history living at the same time. And it's, it's very unlikely that they ever met in person, but they used to write letters to each other and say like, and they would argue about things like, why does ice float on water? Like I remember reading one of their letters that went back and forth. Why does ice float on water? Like this isn't something that's understood at the time. And they're like, like the passive aggressiveness in those letters and just the way they're going after each other, the competition, right? But at the same time, in a sense, they were lifting each other up. Now that's not the ideal way to do it. I don't encourage people to go like, you know, <laughs> attack somebody else and just get into the back and forth. But the point is that they were, in a sense, collaborating. They were in communication with each other. They knew of each other. And this was a thousand years ago. There was no social media. There was no like email. There was no quick way of communication, right? But they were still making an effort to stay in touch with each other, learn from each other and develop on each other's work. And both of them are two of the greatest Muslim minds, two of the greatest minds in human history, right? Um, and so we need to do more of that, first of all. Um, now, in terms of generally, why don't we have um, the same, I, uh, you know, I, I guess the same kind of momentum in terms of making these kinds of discoveries and inventions and contributions, right? The first thing I want to point again is about the golden age, the one that we originally talked about, is to put it into context. We're talking about a period of several hundred years. and you know, when you take like the famous example, Ibn al-Haytham, Ibn Sina, right? Al-Biruni, right? Um, Jabir Ibn Hayyan, when you go through the list, Maryam al-Asturabi, right? Lubna al-Qurtubi, like you can go through the list. It's not that many people. It's still not that many people that we know of anyway, right? That we know of. So it's, it's important to keep in mind that at the same time that there was this um, flourishing of Muslim knowledge creation and cultural activity, there were a lot of people who were merchants. There were a lot of people who were warriors. There were a lot of people who were doing a lot of other different things that don't make it into that narrative, right? Um, and so the point I'm trying to make is that sometimes we may overestimate just how many people were involved in this culture of learning, right? Like mm -hmm. sometimes the assumption seems to be, well, like everyone was a scientist back in those days, right? It's like, okay, we know certain incredible examples, absolutely. Um, but we do need to keep in mind that this was a whole society with many people doing many different kinds of things. And in every society, there's some people who are really just kind of lingering around or, or getting by or, you know, these kinds of you know, situations as well. The human experience is very diverse. Um, and so that's something important to keep in mind today as well, right? Like not everyone has to be the great inventor or the great discoverer. Not everyone will have the capacity not everyone will have the opportunities and the resources, which ties back into my original point in this answer to, to this question is, you know, you could be playing a supporting role, mm -hmm. right? And, and a lot of times, uh, you know, I'm really emphasizing on the spirit of collaboration and why it's so important, because a lot of it nowadays is about, well, building your own brand, right? Building your own, like, uh, you know, it's, it's like, oh, um, the first thing people, before they've even invented anything, they're talking about, copyright and intellectual property and oh I can't collaborate with that person because like oh they're they're like a co they're like a competitor that kind of thing right 
Um, so we need to rethink our attitudes and how they're collectively holding us down. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I, I apologize, but finally coming to the actual question that you asked, right? <laughs> um, over the past century, I feel like my personal opinion and understanding is that uh, colonialism um, disenfranchised and deprived most Muslim communities around the world so much, like to such an extent, the colonial experience did, that careers um, became very much, and you know, they, they became to be understood as a way to escape poverty, for, for lack of a better expression, right? Um, you know, why, well, like, why? Like, you know, you, you rarely hear, and I hope nobody is offended by this, it's just food for thought, but you'll always hear, uh, okay, the doctor, lawyer, engineer thing, right? Or like, if we're really going to stretch it, then become like a business person, right? Um, why is that? Why those particular careers, right? What, what I rarely hear, I hear a lot of that in the Muslim community, and I'm pretty sure anyone in the Muslim community can agree with me. What I don't hear a lot in the Muslim community is like, become a doctor, and so you can cure cancer, or like, you know, cure diabetes, or something like that right? Become a lawyer so you can change the legal system, mm-hmm. right? So to make it more just, to make sure that, you know, racialized uh, communities aren't like overrepresented in prisons and things like that, to actually make a more just society, right? Become an engineer so you can invent like, I don't know, the, the, the spaceship that's going to take us to Mars or something, right? It's not that. It's always just, just become a doctor, just become an engineer, Yes. So we're not actually like, you know, striving for, for something like a, like a, you know, very, um, mm-hmm. you know, we're not reaching far. Right. So what we're doing is um, really, I think it's because these are um, well paying careers traditionally. Right. Um, so they've always been seen as like, okay, we are a family that um, lives in poverty or, or, you know, we are disenfranchised we're disadvantaged in many different ways. Right. Um, and so uh, like I can speak to my own family. Right. Um, my my grandfather was a teacher, right? And and my great grandfather was in, you know, they were in uh, agriculture basically. And my grandfather was a teacher, so it was like a step forward. Become a teacher so we can improve our economic situation. Uh-huh. And then my my father and all his brothers um, became engineers, all of them, right? And it's like, okay, let's let's take our economic situation as a family a step further, right? And now you know, I completely messed it up by becoming a historian in <laughs> <laughs> the fourth generation. I, I kind of screwed over the process, but like it, 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 in theory, like that's, that's what it should have been with that attitude that we have. And I don't want to say like, it's, it's just like, again, like I'm not trying to be offensive and I'm not trying to be very like, um, you know, judgmental about this, that I, it's absolutely important to, to take those steps forward, to improve our economic situation, to climb the ladder of careerism, try to get into better places, because all of that benefits our families and our communities as a whole, right? All of that is important. But at the same time, I think it is like for those of us who are especially first and second generation immigrants, um, those of us who have opportunities, you know, we can go to university, most of the world can't even access a, a you know, a, like a healthy education, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have access to universities, we have opportunities to network and um, build our careers, but at the same time, do more than that, right? 
like as far like I consider myself is like you know I'm not in the greatest I'm not like you know some from a very wealthy Muslim family or something like that but as far as the Muslim world overall is concerned and the situation that so many Muslims around the world live in uh, I'm probably like in the top five percent of the ummah, mm-hmm. right and and that's not being like extraordinarily wealthy or something like that so that being said I think it's it's important for us to start to the only thing i'll say is i think it's important for us to start to revisit um what it is you know that we are reaching for here are we reaching for the stars really right um it's it's time for some of us to start thinking ahead like think maybe not of your own situation but have a goal for like you know the next generation 50 years down the line where do i want to see myself my family my community and what do i have to start doing today to get there right what kind of achievements do we want to have and what kind of work are we going to start putting in today to get there um and hopefully it's going to extend beyond like i just want to have a very good career and make a lot of uh money and make like you know uh just not really make a a groundbreaking contribution but keep the wheel turning while it's already been turning right um and and let's i think we need to think beyond that and we need to think beyond the escape let's escape poverty kind of uh, mindset um, for those of us who have the opportunity and may Allah relieve all of those who are mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. facing very difficult situations around the world in terms of you know financials and, and just uh, the standard of living in general mm. you know I completely concur with everything you said and this is a topic I've spent lots of time thinking on um, one of my favorite quotes that I've been pondering recently was from a U.S. diplomat in the 18th century named John Adams And he said, I study war and politics so that my children can study history and philosophy so that their children can study the arts, culture. Um, And this is the way I I conceive of civilizations. And I I compare this directly with our parents. You know, for most of us, our parents, when they came here, didn't have much on them. And it would have been, you know, it would have been foolish for them to at that stage go into, you know, history, philosophy, you know, into the humanities when they have no money. So yep. at, that, at that first stage of, uh, is, is, is to have that economic uh, balance. And so, you know, my parents, you know, they became, they became business owners. For most of us, our parents became business owners. They went into realms that they could get money. Um, but what's very interesting now is my father tells me, he says, I don't care how much money you make because he knows, obviously, I'll make money. He said, I want you to go and tell those people out there that we aren't terrorists and that we are good people. And so for me, I don't have any incentive to become um, a doctor, an engineer, or even a lawyer. These, These professions that have a lot of money and prestige to them, unless I think I can use that avenue to make change. And so... That's why for me, particularly, I had the privilege of going into the humanities because many, many of my friends, unfortunately, don't have those privileges. Um, right. And so because I'm able to go into that, I'm able to, I, I, you know, I, I'm able to address these questions and I'm able to see what the crux of the problem is. And um, the, the famous British historian Arnold Toynbee, who I'm sure you're familiar with, said that uh, civilizations need a creative minority in order to survive. And what he's referring to are the people of humanities, the philosophers, the historians. 
And like he mentioned, a minority, right? We don't need everybody going into these professions, but we just need enough so that we're represented and that they can give us the direction that we need to go towards. And so what happens in the last hundred years, you're right to say that colonialism came. Um, but if we look at today, unfortunately, most of the Muslim world are either failed states, such as Somalia, such as Iraq, Yemen, Syria, or they're on the borderlines of, of being failed states. And so for them, the main thing they need to be studying is war and politics. They need everybody to be studying just to make sure that their, their families are being safe. Um, but, you know, inshallah, the tide is turning for everybody who has been studying. The 21st century is known as the Asian century. And we're beginning to see the fall of Western hegemony and the rise of many Asian powers, particularly in the Muslim world, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Indonesia specifically. So inshallah, I think that when, you, when, when a civilization reaches a level where they are economically sound, where most of their population is in the middle class and not in the lower class, then we can begin to see the development in many of these different sciences. So um, this can is- Can I just add quickly, Go ahead, uh, yeah. you know, I, I absolutely agree, but you know, I, I guess just to summarize the point um, that, that I was making um, and, and that you reiterated as well, um, it, it's not, I, I think it's not so much, of, of course, like the creative minority, like you mentioned, I think that's a beautiful quote, it's important. Right, um, and it's crucial for certain uh, members of the community to be in those fields. But um, it, it's more like the, the, the core message I, I think that needs to get across is that um, in whichever field you are, whatever you're doing, be enterprising within that, right? And this is why I mentioned like the, the Al-Buran and the egg class, right? All she was doing was experimenting in the kitchen. Right? She was just experimenting different ways, but that is a contribution to humanity, something that's appreciated, whether people recognize the name that they're using or not, whether they know the history behind it or not, it, it ultimately, when they do learn, it'll go back to her, right? Um, and so whatever you're doing, be enterprising within it, right? Push further, right? Don't, don't get into a career, any career, or whatever it is that you do, um, and just do it, right? Change the way it's done. How can this be improved? Every career, there's, there's a lot of room for improvement. Whatever you're doing within that field, there are huge challenges that need to be overcome. There's huge improvements that need to be made. And as a Muslim, you should, and you know, we, we make dua to Allah to give us the tawfiq to it and enable us to make those kinds of contributions. Um, but we should, we should have that desire. We should um, encourage others to have that desire in our circles, our siblings, our friends, etc. Um, and we should try to, you know, inculcate that desire within ourselves that, no, I will be at the forefront of changing this, whatever this may be. You could be a lawyer, engineer, doctor, historian, whatever it is, but whatever it is that I'm doing, I'm going to do it better than what it's the way it's done right now. Like, this is what Muslims do. We make the world better, inch by inch, in every single opportunity that we have. And certainly, our, all of our careers are huge opportunities. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I thank you for saying that, bro, because that's very important that we don't need people necessarily to leave, um, leave their disciplines, but rather to craft them. Um, yes. And, you know, I think on, like on an Islamic reminder, we should always remember that, you know, that your actions are based upon your intention. And far too many people, especially Muslims, 
um, have the wrong intentions with going into certain professions because they think um, there's a certain prestige I will get by being this. So when people identify me as being a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, they'll think that I'm this educated person or that, you know, I'll get, you know, I'll get a sick rishta from it or something. <laughs> like, unfortunately, this is, this is the level that we're operating in. So always remember that what is your intention? If your intention is to do this for the sake of pride, remember the hadith where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says that you will not enter paradise if you have an ounce of pride. Um, and this is for, first most a reminder to myself to, to always remember that put Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first and really ask why are you doing this, right? Why are you starting a podcast? Are you doing this so other people can say, oh, you Ahmed, you have a podcast or you're really doing this to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and get the correct message out. Um, and the battle for intention is something which is always needed. We never get to a point where your intentions are completely pure um, because this is, you know, this is a race until the end. So I'm really glad that you brought up that point because I didn't emphasize it enough that whatever discipline you're, you're in, master it. And that, and, and oftentimes put the Islamic perspective onto it as well, because whatever discipline you're in, you can, you can instill Islam into it. Um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to mention is when you look at the, this so-called golden age of Islam, and I do have a problem with the term golden age of Islam, because at the end of the day, the, the golden age is really during the Prophet Like that's the peak of Islam. But in terms Absolutely. of these scientific developments, um, you know, you cannot name a single discipline that Muslims did not develop. Um, every single discipline. And what you would also find is you'll find that Muslims always instilled Islam into that discipline. So for example, I'll give you an example for um, criminology. Um, one of my professors, um, well, he has his, he has his, he's, he's a mentor to me. Uh, he taught me at SFU, he has his PhD in criminology but he has a very robust understanding of Islam as well. And he's, he's sending, he I took the class I took with him was on restorative justice. And he was sending me articles on how the Prophet wasallam had a restorative justice mechanism, that the Sharia is restorative justice. And there's a huge discipline on this. Um, I, 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 I interviewed um, a history professor. Yeah, maybe you know him, his name, uh, Dr. Yaqub Ahmed. Um, yeah. Um, in Istanbul and he said we need to Islamicize history put Islam into it so in all is and psychology first most I think psychology is probably the most important that we put the Islamic uh, perspective on it so whatever discipline you're in you can put you can instill Islam within it as well so um, with that being said um, what you know I'll give you the last the last say uh, on the matter um, any of your final thoughts on the matter there was no way we were going to do the golden age of Islam in one podcast. <laughs> right. We, we are fooling ourselves to even think we could even, um, you know, to, to touch the, uh, you know, you know, you know, the, what's, what's it called? Khidr alayhi salam says to Musa that the knowledge of Allah is the ocean and that the bird that drinks is, uh, is the knowledge of the human being. So we just got that tiny sip in, but, um, any of your last thoughts on, um, you know, maybe, maybe something tangible that Muslims can take from this, that, okay, we have, we, we've made these remarkable contributions in history, but so what today? Well, what is the relevancy of it today? Um, I think, uh, you know, one thing I always suggest is um, take whatever is, you know, when, because I often get this question of, well, uh, I, I want to learn history, where do I start? 
right? And I, and I, every time I get the question, I'm like, you know, like it's like the like the world is shaking around me. Like, like what? Like, you know, even I don't know the answer to that. Like, where do you start learning history? Now, obviously, uh, you know, it, it, as Muslims, okay, the most important history that we need to know is the life of the Prophet mm-hmm. The reason being exactly what you just said, because that is the golden age, really, right? That is the golden age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that is extremely important. I know this is like almost a given, you know, and, and people, you know, often hear this and they're like, well, of course, like I understand that. It's like, yes, but it's something that is important enough that we constantly need to remind ourselves about constantly. And so I won't shy away from it. It's like, I think it's very important to really do a deep dive into the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You know, there's a lot of podcasts now. Qalam Institute does, a, you know, a great series. Um, Shaykh Yasser Qadi has a great series um, on the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam on YouTube, right? Um, you're checking your local area right now for the COVID, things are kind of tight, but uh, maybe your local mosque, et cetera, maybe they do some programming around that. but. But study the life of the Prophet ﷺ in detail, and it's it's amazing how you you can just you can just never stop learning new things from it. Like you could study it over and over and over again. You could read the same book over and over again, and every time it, it's like different things are catching your attention, and you're learning different things, and um, you're really getting a better and better understanding of who our role model in life was, the Prophet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, so after that, um, I really do like this little bit of an interview of, okay, what are, like, tell me about yourself, right? The history I think you should start learning is the history that's most immediately relevant to yourself. Like, do you know your family history? Have you ever talked to your parents or grandparents? Like, that stuff is real history, and it's absolutely important for you to understand because it intimately affects your life, and that's why you have to understand it. Right, like like I explained with the the educational history of my family, right, or the sorry the career history of my family, like all of those things, like from my great grandfather to my grandfather to my to my dad, to me, it puts my life into a lot of context and helps me make a lot of decisions, um, and and helps me develop that sense of purpose and that motivation. The other thing I'll say is, um, so that's one example, right, family history, um, but. In terms of as far as the golden age is concerned, um, I think it's really important to, like you said, Muslims touched any sort of modern field that you can pick up, like Muslims have touched it in some way, right? They've, they've contributed, they contributed to it in some way. So it's like, okay, what's your field? What do you do like for work? Like what's your day to day, right? Um, and that like becomes the entry point for me to say, okay, I think you should look at the history of this just to spark your curiosity a little bit. Um, and because you're going to understand it like in a way that's better than I understand it. Like I can tell you that ice cream originated in Persia and it came through Persia and it came to Europe and then it spread around the world, all those kind of things. But I can't understand and appreciate that the same way as somebody who sells ice cream or makes ice cream, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I just won't be able to. So that's why I want to share it with that person. So the point being, whatever fields you're in, if you can't, you know, if it's difficult to do the research on your own, it often is get in touch with like someone like myself or Ahmed, like those of us who read more history than the average person and may have come across things that you otherwise may not find. Get in touch with us and and tell us like, okay, this is what I do for a living. Develop that curiosity. 
what you know could be the angle is there there is there a history to this is there an islamic history to this um and then once you understand that make it part of what you do like you said right islamicizing our disciplines um and also taking that as a dawah opportunity so if you work as a nurse right if you work as a like as a surgeon for example and you can point to the fact that hey like every single surgery that we do you see the standard list of like surgical instruments that we have here like half of them were invented like a thousand years ago by this guy named Azahabi mm-hmm. right um and he was this and that so it also becomes a dawah opportunity because even that non-muslim will understand and appreciate Azahabi's contribution better than i do because he's been doing surgery his entire life with those tools mm-hmm. you know what i mean so so i, I think it, it, we have to within like specific fields we have to start reflecting on okay what is um islam's connection to the work i do on a day to day basis right um and then from there so that's my sort of practical tangible advice hopefully it's helpful inshallah uh but to start there whatever it is that you do learn about the islamic connection the islamic contribution there and then share it with others within that field um and, and so we spread the knowledge and you know as part of that package we spread the message of islam exactly i couldn't have put it better um i couldn't have put it better um and you'll find that whatever discipline you are um especially to engineering um you'll find many inventions that muslims have made um if i could request you to buy one book um one of the greatest books i've read in my life is 1001 inventions um and this is a book compiled by national geographic um vi- beautiful book it's the most beautiful book i have uh, if i had it here i would show you but it's in my room um but it has most it, it has it breaks down all of the most of the inventions that muslims have made and the sections that they have made in so whatever craft you're working on um you know place islam into it and i will close with a quote from somebody uh we both love which is alama iqbal who said um islam is not a set of feelings a set of expressions but it's the entire expression of the human being it's everything everything that you are speaks of your islam and it not only is that related to our character but also into the sciences that we do develop um and so you can always find a way to put islam into it and by all means if you have any questions um feel free to contact me feel free to con- contact brother hasam um but inshallah hopefully this is the beginning of a discussion that we can um expand upon inshallah so with that we will conclude if you have any last words bro uh i'd appreciate it and then we can conclude inshallah uh well i think uh, we've we've shared enough food for thought for ourselves and for the audience as well so i really just want to say thank you i really appreciate the opportunity you being an enterprising person yourself mashallah launching this podcast creating spaces where we can have these kinds of discussions i'm very grateful for that and Uh, for all the other great work that you do um and uh, i hope a lot of good will come out of this conversation i hope we'll get a lot of responses from people um related to the things we discussed questions like you said comments um things that people think we might be able to do better or maybe corrections for us in terms of our world view and our perspective so all of that is is very much welcome and looking forward to it um jazakallah khair for the opportunity Thank you brother Hassan. Um and to everyone, thank you for the, thank you for tuning into the podcast. Um I I am very open to feedback. Um whatever it may be, please let me know if there's a specific topic, 
if there's a specific structure that you think uh, that you think I should be doing, please let me know. I'm open to it. Um, and with that, we will conclude. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.